Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina who was accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we began our review of the cross-examination of Mark Tinsley, the lawyer who represented the family of Mallory Beach in their claim for Beach's wrongful death against the Murdoch family. As part of an in-camera hearing before Judge Clifton Newman, so that the court may determine the admissibility of evidence of the defendant's financial crimes in this murder trial. In this installment, we conclude our look at Mr. Tinsley's testimony. That's all coming up, right after the break. 2023, day 9 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, defense attorney Philip Barber was challenging Mark Tinsley's assertion that a judge had granted his motion seeking information regarding Alex Murdoch's financial situation in his suit against Murdoch for the death of Mallory Beach in a boating accident caused by Murdoch's son Paul. As we begin today, Philip Barber continues to dispute Mr. Tinsley's characterization of the judge's decision on that motion by asking the witness to compare it with how the judge handled a similar motion against another defendant in that same case. You asked for financial information uh, in the motion that was pending against Parker's that was also going to be heard on June 10th. That, uh, it, it was different and for different reasons. You asked for alcohol sales, correct? What I explained to Judge Hall was, is that they say he's broke, and so for my sir, no, sir, no, 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 sir, I'm asking what you asked for from Parker's. I'm pretty sure that wasn't, they say he's broke. What were you asking for from Parker's? I asked for, among other things, the percent of alcohol sales that made up his net profit. And this was like the dram shop action against Parker's, correct? They sold the alcohol. Like a dram shop right. action, yes. Okay. The reference here to a dram shop action against Parker's relates to a separate lawsuit brought by Mr. Tinsley on behalf of the Beach family against a restaurant called Parker's Kitchen. In that suit, Tinsley asserted that the Parker's employee who sold alcohol to Paul Murdoch did not do her due diligence to confirm Paul's age and identity, and therefore that Parker's Kitchen should bear some of the responsibility for Paul's drunken operation of the boat in the crash that killed Mallory Beach. Philip Barber follows up on his question about the witness's request for financial information from Parker's Kitchen. And did you get a ruling on that request for that financial information from Parker's that was going to be heard on that June 10th day, just along with all these other motions that had piled up in a case that apparently wasn't moving very well, quickly. I, I understand you don't want to acknowledge what I've handed you, but... Um, Sir, I asked you what the ruling was on the motion. Uh, well, it, it, from Parker's. it was very limited, and as it related to the percent of sales of alcohol that made up his profit, 
uh, it was premature. The judge ruled, unlike he did in that order I handed you, that it was premature at the time. Why was it premature? Well, the difference between Parker's and Ellick is, is that Ellick had, and his lawyers had, 25 videos of alcohol. They had the punitive damages evidence. You didn't see that with Parker's. It was just a straight-up transaction in sale. So to the extent you're suggesting that there wasn't this evidence, there were these mere allegations of negligent parenting, that wasn't the case. That wasn't the you argument. You presented that evidence to the court? I didn't have to present it to the court. That's what you don't understand. John Tiller knew about it. John Tiller is the one who's responding because John Tiller knows ultimately he's going to be in front so of the judge. the court was granting your motion, though obviously it was saying there might be a hearing on the motion, and maybe at that hearing you would present some evidence in support. But I don't think that's what it says. I mean, you asked for financial information for Parker's. It was deemed premature because it related to punitive damages, correct? It, it, it was different than the motion that it related to Pellet. Because the law is how much money you have is a factor for punitive damages, correct? Well, you, you're, you're making statements of law. I'm telling you what was happening, and what was happening was is that Ellick's lawyers knew what the evidence was, they knew what the amendment was going to be and the allegations, and he knew ultimately he was going to be back in front of Judge Hall making some ridiculous argument that I you're, you're suggesting now. And again, the gist of this is that there was perhaps going to be this judgment day, I think is a term the state has used, but that was going to be trial, right? That was going to be the verdict. That was going to be judgment day, not this motion hearing where there's a pile of motions that have piled up. And we saw the one that asked for financial information was deemed premature. Not, not at all. You know, what was going on is, is, as I've said a number of times, Danny Henderson was very involved. Danny Henderson was a shareholder. Before I would have gotten the bank account information, before I would have seen the records, Danny Henderson would have seen those records. And I've seen the records. I've seen all the bank statements now. It would have been apparent to Danny Henderson, and I believe it would have been apparent to me what Alec had been doing. So that's the judgment day, is the discovery. And there were a lot of threads that were being pulled, uh, and it was subject to unraveling at any moment. And if those records were disclosed. If Danny Henderson reviewed those records, he would have known there's no way Alec's getting these checks. There's no way these checks are going to forge. There's no way that this money should be transferred. Danny Henderson was a partner in the PMPED law firm in which Alex Murdoch was a partner. Jeannie Seckinger previously testified that in September of 2021, Henderson and the defendant's brother, Randy Murdoch, also a partner in the firm, confronted Alex with evidence of his financial crimes, and Alex admitted his guilt to them. Barber tries to rebut the witness's assertion. And even if, hypothetically, had this hearing on the 10th, and you got a different ruling regarding uh, Alex Murdoch than you got against Parker's, that for some reason it's not premature to him, isn't it true all you would have been enabled, all you could have gotten would have been a, a net worth statement, financial statement? Not, not even remotely close. Isn't that that you don't, in your opinion, there's no case law out there saying that's what you get, you know, for that's the measure for punitive damages net worth. There's no such case in your opinion as an attorney. I had seven circuit court orders where the circuit court had ruled that you don't bifurcate discovery, that it wouldn't be proper to have denied the motion. And then what are we going to do? We're going to try the case and suddenly we're going to stop the trial and go and do the discovery? No. And so I had seven circuit court orders that I handed up to Judge Hall 
that supported our position. I think that that's what Judge Hall did in his order. Uh, and, and again, you know, the issue is it's not that complicated. It's does he have the ability to pay? Is he broke such that these people sh should uh, accept this pitiful offer if he could cobble it together? But, sir, that's not what you get on a motion to compel, is it? Right. You, you're, you're, you just said ability to pay so your client can make a decision on whether to accept a settlement offer, but that is not what the motion to compel is about, is it? It's about evidence for trial. The motion That's the legal standard, is it not? No, the motion to compel was about putting pressure on Ellick. I didn't really give two cents about whether or not he ultimately had money, because I knew he had money. I didn't need those things. The fact that he didn't want me to have them is the reason that I'm pushing it. So, I just didn't know why he didn't want me to have them at the time. I do now. So the motion to compel was to put pressure on Alex. It wasn't about an expectation the judge was actually going to give you this stuff on, on June 10th? If you're a good plaintiff's lawyer, everything you do in a case is to put pressure on the other side. But the expectation of the outcome of a hearing on June 10th was not that you're going to get to launch a full-scale forensic audit because you had a conversation with someone who said, whose lawyer said, oh, he's, he's broke, and you didn't believe it. Not at that stage of the litigation, sir, is it? That's not what's, what's going to happen, is it? I don't think you need a full-scale forensic audit for something a five-year-old could see. So, no. You wanted pretrial ability to pay discovery to inform whether or not to accept a uh, compulsive discovery, compelled, so that your client could decide whether or not to take a settlement offer. I know you don't like the answer, but I'm telling you, I did not care about the answer. What I cared about was putting pressure on Alec. I think that your assessment of the law is wrong, and I didn't really care whether I got it at the end of the day. I knew he didn't want me to have it. And so that's what I was doing was putting pressure on him. It would have suited me fine not to have ever gotten anything and to leverage it into a settlement and gone on about my way. That's not what happened. So it was the motion was not about obtaining uh, information that may have been relevant at trial. It was about getting information to inform whether or not you wanted, your client would take a settlement offer. What I told Judge Hall was, they say he's broke. My people have lived in Hampton their entire lives. They do not believe he's broke. If he's broke, we need to open the books and let them see it so that they can then form a, a, an informed opinion about what they should do. It didn't, it didn't have anything to do with, with the trial. It had to do with the case and resolving the case. And, and then I think we briefly touched on Satterfield. Just to be clear, they came to you, the first time they came into your office or, uh, any was September 21? It's, it's either late August or early September, very early September. And, and since now I'm thinking that since the roadside shooting, whatever that ridiculousness was, was the 4th, it, it could have been August. But it was after, well after June 7th. It was after June 7th. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Before posing his next question to Mr. Tinsley, Philip Barber briefly consults with his co-counsel Dick Harpudlian and then returns to the witness. 
if the hearing had gone up forward on June uh, 10th, this was a Thursday, what outcome did you expect? The same one that we got when it went forward. The judge hadn't seen Well, I mean, the, the outcome wouldn't have been the court will schedule a hearing. I mean, if the hearing had gone forward, what outcome do you expect, would you have expected? Well, you know, now I know that Alec was working on Monday to get the information together. If the objection was sufficient, there's no reason he would be getting the information together on Monday. Uh, so I could have gotten the information, but since that didn't happen, if we had argued it, I think I would have had the same outcome. Because he didn't, you know, let, let me just make it a little simpler. Would the court have issued an order, right? Some order would have issued on the motion. I, yeah, I, I would expect an order Let's to issue. break it down. An order would have issued at some point later, and what if it were granting your motion, what would that order say? I think it would say the same thing as well, well sir, that says a motion hearing will be will be scheduled if necessary. It obviously wouldn't say that. So what would the order granting well, the motion say? Again, it what it says is is that once Mr. Tiller gets the information from Ellick, gives it to me, if necessary, if I deem it insufficient then we'll have another hearing and we'll argue about it. So that's what it's I a voluntary expect. voluntary disclosure, and then if you deem that insufficient, we go have a motion to compel hearing? That's the way motions to compel go every single day. So if you deemed it insufficient, if, if the court actually had to issue an order on your motion, what, you would have gotten every, you've gotten his, um, would the law firm books have been open to you? I don't know that I'm asking for the law firm books. I'm asking for Alex. Right, accounts. would you, you have gotten what, a financial statement? No. The court would have ordered uh, every account detailed listed to you, all those personal accounts, just because you asked for it to inform a settlement decision? I was asking for the names of the institutions where he had accounts. I've told you that. Right, to subpoena. Sure, and, but that's different. And that would have been resisted me. and there would have been further litigation. This, this process would have taken some time, wouldn't it, if it was resisted, mm -hmm. right? I'm not sure if what was resisted. If you got the names of the banks and issued subpoenas, there would be motions to quash the subpoenas. Well, I, you know, you're, you're right. speculating the same as you're asking me to speculate. I'm trying to talk to you about what the judge actually did and what was actually in front of the judge. I get you don't want to talk about that, but, you know, we can speculate any number of things could have happened. That at some point in the future, you would maybe get a voluntary disclosure, and if you didn't like it, then the motion would be heard, the motion to compel. That, that's, that's what you say it says, right? Well, if we had shown up and they had made the argument that you're advancing here, then maybe in this imaginary world there's things that didn't happen, the judge would have uh, actually ruled on it. We would, have, we would have a ruling on whether or not it was relevant, whether or not I was entitled to it. Um, it would have been relevant for Alex, but not for Parker's. Look, it, there, there are different things that are being asked here. And, and, and to your point, if it were the same, why didn't the judge sign the same order that you say he would have done? That's not what he did. At the same time we argued the Parker's motion, we argued the motion for Alec. And so he came to two different conclusions on those issues. One is he said it's premature. The other is is that Mr. Tiller is going to get the information, give it to the plaintiffs, and if it's not sufficient, we'll have another hearing. I don't know how you can be any clearer than that. Defense attorney Philip Barber again takes a moment to consult with co-counsels Dick Harpudlian and Jim Griffin and then returns to Mr. Tinsley. So just if you can agree on this, the hearing had gone forward June 10th. That day would not have been some sort of judgment day when everything unravels, correct? 
there have been further activity, maybe a voluntary disclosure, analysis by you, whether it's adequate, another hearing if you thought it wasn't, maybe some subpoenas would go out. There was going to be some time after that. Is that fair? I think it's fair that to say that there wouldn't have been an explosion on June the 10th, but the fuse was lit the moment that that information became available in the case. Not as much to me, but certainly to Danny Henderson, who would have like the phone records, like some of the other materials, reviewed it before I got it. And Bellick would have known that. I mean, in that analogy, isn't, aren't you really saying the fuse was lit when the, we're going after his assets? And that fuse is going to go down until trial because you're going to go to trial against him, and that's when the fuse would burn down? I think the fuse was lit when he started stealing money. So it wasn't lit on, it wasn't going to be lit on June it's certainly getting a lot more oxygen. Right, but it's it was lit way before, and it was going to keep burning well after June 10th. I, I don't know about well after, but it it wouldn't have been Judgment Day on June the 10th, but but he would have known it was beginning to unravel. Not Judgment Day. No further questions. After Barber concludes his cross examination of Mr. Tinsley, Creighton Waters rises for a brief redirect. And that's really. Uh, the point isn't it though that had that hearing taken place on june 10th 2021 it could potentially set in motion or was going to set in motion a process that ultimately would not have ended until there was either settlement or disclosure of that information correct i believe so and so just the fact of that hearing taking place and whether it's an order or representations by the defense or whatever it is that process if it occurs starts and it has an inevitable conclusion correct Objection. There's only one objection. Philip Barber objects. Judge Clifton Newman instructs Creighton Waters to refrain from leading the witness. If the hearing takes place on June 10th, 2021, what is the net effect of what could happen at that? The discovery of everything he's done. Whether it happens that day or some point in time. Correct. You had filed this motion to compel, or had you filed this motion to compel because you had been advised supposedly that Allen was broke and you didn't believe it. Exclusively for that reason. And you believe that if he was broke, he had to be hiding assets. And if he were hiding assets, he didn't want me to discover it, which would be the pressure point. Were you merely asking for a financial declaration uh, for, at this June 10th, 21 hearing? No, I, I, I was, it's broader than that, I, but I wanted the institutions because I knew I couldn't trust the number I would have gotten. From Alec. From Ellen. You were asked a little bit about having not pled certain theories yet at this point in time, such as negligent entrustment. Can you explain a little bit about why that was, if that was still out there? It was only out there in the sense of the pleadings that were on file. I mean, we, John Tiller had already agreed to the amendment. It was already coming. I had shown him the videos a long time before that uh, of alcohol, the Facebook, social media likes of Paul consuming alcohol, having alcohol, so only on the documents that were filed. Were those issues already in play in your conversations with the defense? I'm not, I'm not quite following you. Which, which issues? Additional theories of liability that might not have been filed. Oh, I, oh absolutely. No, I mean, it, the, those were, all I'm saying is, is that the black ink wasn't on the white paper, but John Tiller knew we had discussed, these are the issues. Creighton Waters retrieves the document and shows it to Philip Barber before handing it to Mr. Tinsley. I'm going to hand this back to you, but I'll show you what's been marked as States 407, so you can recognize that. Yes, this is the order that I handed 
Mr. Barber? Yes. Okay. That's from October of 2021, is that correct? It is. You had uh, previously testified that uh, $1 million, you know, was not really, was not going to be enough, at least prior to the murders, is that correct? Correct. Had you come up with a number that had been conveyed that was far, far in excess of that? A demand to Alec? Yes. Yes. And that also included uh, signing over Moselle and Edisto? It was an option. Uh, as well as a payment plan? Payment plan was an option. You pay this amount, you can sign over these properties, work out a payment plan on the balance. I didn't care how we got it done. It was just a matter of him doing it. Was the payment plan an option because you believe that he still would have a lucrative law practice from which he could generate money to pay your clients? Yes. Thank you, Your Honor. Nothing further. Thanks, further. Nothing, Your Thank you, Your Thank you, Your Honor. Step down. And with the conclusion of Mark Tinsley's testimony, we bring to an end this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we look at the testimony of one final witness in the in-camera hearing. And we present Judge Clifton Newman's decision on the admissibility of evidence of the defendant's financial crimes in this trial. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.